This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Well, these days, many people get their news first from Facebook, but not in Australia they don't, at least not since last Thursday. In breaking news this morning, social media giant Facebook has followed through on its threat, restricting people in Australia from viewing news content. In the early hours of the morning, the tech giant pulled the plug on news providers all of a sudden. We look at what happened next and why they did it in the first place. Later, we'll hear how Meghan Markle got a big win in court over a British newspaper publisher which violated her privacy, and all that could end up in a big money payout. But is it also a case that our media here should be considering? But before that, how the media coped this past week with the sudden switch of COVID-19 alert levels. I had that small gasp, my breath taken away slightly when the Prime Minister started speaking just then. So just to reiterate, uh, Auckland heading into alert level three as of midnight tonight and the rest of the country heading into alert level two until midnight on Wednesday with 24-hour reviews. So the first one will be tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Normal programming is going to be... That was Reverend Frank Ritchie, the self-styled news media chaplain, on his show Sunday at 6 on News Talk ZB last Sunday. And he and his co-host Jax Van Buren weren't the only ones who had their breath taken away by news of the sudden change in alert levels that night. In fact, soon after that, ZB ditched some of its normal programming for the night to keep the talkback lines open for the listeners who might just feel the need to talk. Keep calling talkback, use it as a, as a chance to stay connected. And the first caller to Sunday at 6 after that, Cathy, at first responded as if the lockdown announcement hadn't happened. Hi, um, I just want to comment on the previous caller who said something about she went six weeks without a pension. But soon after, it was pretty clear Cathy hadn't really called ZB to talk about that other caller's pension. I've got a husband in a rest home who's Mm. an amputee and now I'm going to him every day for the last eight months he's been in the rest home. I've, I've visited him for five hours. I go to him and I stay with him every day. But mm. you know what? I can't go tomorrow now. Oh, Kathy. <laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world when you've been married. Mm. He gave me a Valentine's card day today and he made it out of a piece of paper. The next caller up on News Talk ZB also had quite a story to tell. I'm just in a bit of a state of shock at the moment because uh, actually I found out uh, all uh, right before the announcement, a few hours before, that I'm like a third-hand contact to the people who have COVID at the moment. And with some callers clearly feeling anxious, it was perhaps appropriate that when normal programming did resume again, it was with ZB's long-running mental health show also getting pretty creative with its theme tune. And welcome to the Nutters Club, the show that talks about your mental health every Sunday night and Monday morning and tries to see if we can't give you a bit of a helping hand. Wow. We might need to do a bit of helping hands tonight. Because that's right, we're in lockdown, baby. How, how long to go? What is it? It's uh, 11, 11.08. We've yeah, got 52 about minutes. 52 minutes to lockdown. However, with the lines open that night, both before and after the Nutters Club show, some fairly nutty ideas were being aired on ZB as well. well so you reckon, what do we do, Shady? Declare war on China? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds like a great idea, Shady. Brilliant. I'll tell you what, if we do, that'll solve the COVID problem. We'll be fried to a crisp. Uh, David, good evening. 
Now, another thing that got people going on talkback that night was reports of panic buying breaking out, again, in and around Auckland, tracked on radio news bulletins and captured by TV news cameras dispatched to local countdowns. And back on News Talk ZB, caller Joan wasn't sympathetic. It's madness. Absolute madness. I know. And, And I wonder just how long that lasts or whether it goes rotten. Uh, I hope it does go rotten. I hope they get their flowers full of weevils, Joan. And there was also not much sympathy about for those trying to get out of Auckland in a hurry that night, threatening to defeat the purpose of the looming lockdown. And that was what prompted Cameron to call ZB from somewhere in South Waikato to say plenty of people had been coming his way. Yeah, I've had three phone calls and texts already, Cameron, and now you're confirming it as well. I wonder, I mean, surely everyone's not coming down just to see you. While it was a fascinating evening to be listening into Talkback Radio, news websites also went into overdrive on what's normally their slowest time of the week. On the Herald site, political editor Audrey Young said the success or otherwise of the government strategy could only really be judged in the rearview mirror, meaning sometime in the future when we know how it's all panned out. And that drew immediate but very unfair scorn on social media for undermining the effort. And while experts appeared on radio and TV to make the point all the while that the virus is dynamic and so then are the circumstances of each new outbreak, some broadcasters with a platform simply repeated the same reckons. On Monday morning, for example, Duncan Garner kicked off his AM show on three, trying to be upbeat, while at the same time, not. Uh, chin up, um, we can do this. I'm hoping it's a short three-day lockdown, as you probably are too, but experience tells us we crash hard into these lockdowns and it takes time to get out the other side. Stay positive. It's worked before it should again. Don't panic buy. Supermarkets are stocked and open. Re- relax. But when the news came through, I yelped, bugger. I worry for businesses. I worry for jobs, and this will do nothing for business confidence. It's a strange pep talk that starts with chin up and then gets to businesses may now fail within 30 seconds. But having made it clear how he felt, he turned to the show's efforts to find out how we feel with yet another online poll. Our question of the day, Mm. how are you feeling about the alert level change? We've got a few options up there. Happy, sad, scared, angry. Interesting. Really is. There's a lot of angry people out there. 51% people are angry. Um, Half the, half the country. Our News Hub's poll didn't show that half the country was angry. About 4,500 people voted this time, the majority for options other than angry. But if a substantial number of the AM show's fans who could be bothered answering the question of the day were mad, well, why? Are you angry because our borders remain open? Maybe they're angry because we're not going harder. I've been saying this for months. Just temporarily close mm. the border. And man, people come down on me. Maybe they're, maybe they're coming my way. It was indeed not the first time that Duncan Garner had called for a complete closure of our border. To me, hard and early would see us close the borders, actually. I've said it before, here it is again, close the border temporarily to all the cargo, even cargo even, not all cargo, but some cargo, and the most essential arrivals. Carry on freely inside the border. We can't keep doing it the same way. Now, Duncan Garner isn't the only one who thinks that about our border, and when one person put that question to the official Unite to Fight COVID-19 Facebook page, she got this prompt response. The right of return is outlined in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act. Number one, everyone lawfully in New Zealand has the right to freedom of movement and residence in New Zealand. Number two, every New Zealand citizen has the right to enter New Zealand. Number three, everyone has the right to leave New Zealand.
And for good measure, that response also said that the same rights are set out in Magna Carta and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 13. They could also have added that people also pass through New Zealand to transit to other countries and don't actually go into quarantine here at all. And you can't easily opt out of that if you still need airlines, including our own, to operate internationally, which we do. Over on News Talk ZB, Mike Hosking had been arguing for weeks for plans to open the borders. They're afraid. They are governed by fear and caution. They are control freaks. I text several people in the news industry and ask them to call it. They call it wrong. They too are asleep, having taken the complacency pill. But here's the thing, the important thing. Vaccine or no vaccine, we are stuck with this. The reality is a handful of cases, locks are placed down. We have not progressed one step in 12 months. But the other important thing Mike Hosking didn't mention there is that the virus has moved on in the past year. And we were dealing now with a more infectious version, which means this wasn't just a repeat of the last lockdown in August 2020 or Americold all over again, as Mike Hosking reckoned last Monday. And this is part of the dishonesty with all of this. There was no elimination. And then you've got, and, and, and isn't this funny how news travels so quickly? What were we celebrating to a degree on Friday? Vaccine arrives. So what were we thinking would happen with the vaccine? Oh, we, life would be back to normal. Nothing of the sort. So, well, hold on, is the vaccine the, the answer or not? Well, of course not the answer. It's never going to be the answer. If you're old and frail, it'll stop you dying. But apart from that, you're still going to get locked down level three with cases like this. Now, it's true that hopes new vaccines could rapidly usher in herd immunity have receded, but the vaccine could still reduce the risk of further transmission in the foreseeable future and get borders open to countries in a similar position sooner without the need for lockdowns if the virus gets through. A couple of years ago, Mike Hosking had a second gig in the evenings, hosting and airing his opinions on TVNZ's Seven Sharp show. And on Tuesday, its audience got a more neutral read on the vaccine's arrival from the show's current hosts. The race to immunise the entire country against COVID-19 is looming. The vaccination rollout will be New Zealand's biggest ever. And that's some operation to get jabs administered to the entire team of five million. With the country's border workers gearing up to be the first in line, starting from Saturday. Are the vaccines here? Are we ready for this rollout? Kind of. <laughs> I think. I think we. You know, we we're in a reasonably good position to to manage what we've got at the moment. And the day before that, Seven Sharp delivered news you could use by telling TVNZ viewers what the CT threshold was all about. A cycle threshold value is a figure indicating how much of the COVID-19 virus someone has. When you take a test, scientists copy the sample again and again to see if they can detect the virus. The CT value is the number of rounds of copying it takes for the virus to show up. A small amount of virus will take more cycles to show up. But if the patient has lots of the virus, it'll show up quickly. Meanwhile, that same night on Māori television, current affairs show Te Ao with Moana confronted vaccination anxiety and misinformation with Māori medical experts. However, some of us still feel anxious about immunisation, me included, so I asked Dr Rawiri Jansen for help. Dr Rawiri Jansen explained how the vaccine could be rolled out tactically so those in greatest need of it would get it earlier and Moana Mania Poto raised the tricky question of whether Māori as a whole should be nearer the head of the queue and also the elevated hesitancy among Māori. But I don't think it takes looking very far on social media or, you know, people who you know to touch someone who has a degree of vaccine hesitancy and that is probably 
born out of mistrust and fear. And as if to make that point, almost all of the 200-odd comments on the Facebook page of Te Ao with Moana came from fearful people insisting they won't take the vaccine for a number of outlandish and mostly ill-informed reasons. Now, some accused the programme of outright lies and deception on the issue, though a few people said that having heard the experts, their fears had actually been eased. And that mirrored a program which went out in the UK that same night, the BBC's flagship current affairs show, Panorama. Tonight, the video spreading fear. It sounded so real, and the people were so plausible. I hear from the communities being targeted by anti-vaccine tactics. Now, in this programme, the BBC's reporter dedicated to online misinformation, Mariana Spring, exposed a group of people in the vaccination queue to one widely watched anti-vax video with one respected expert on hand to answer their questions. And the programme ended like this. Protester Joanna, because of her job as a carer, has now had the vaccine. Helen is also having the vaccine. She feels she has a responsibility to those she might work with in the future. Sarita, after speaking to a doctor she trusts, is planning to have the jab. Her family have now had theirs. And Rosemary has made up her mind after we told her the truth about the video. How are you feeling about having the vaccine today? Absolutely. So pleased, I can't (laughs) even say. Relieved. More than 15 million people in the UK have so far been vaccinated. It's the one part of the country's response which appears to have gone to plan. But here, it's just getting started, and so too has the anti-COVID vaccination campaign. In breach of Level 3 rules on Monday, a small band of anti-vaxxers protested outside Jacinda Ardern's electorate office, while a neighbour drowned out their chants with heavy metal. And that same day, Magic Talk radio host Peter Williams, under fire for amplifying vaccine fears last week, made this point to a caller. In fact, I'd suggest that the ratio of people employed as communications professionals, unquote, in uh, government agencies and in local authorities would be... It would be three to four times the number of people who still work as reporters in the media industry. It may be even bigger. Well, Peter Williams isn't wrong about that, and at times the government PR people and journalists have butted heads about exactly what ought to be brought to public attention. But when it comes to the facts about COVID-19 outbreaks, lockdowns and vaccines, the goal of the PR people and the journalists is pretty much one and the same. On Wednesday, the day the government went back down a level, it also launched a new drive to get people the facts about the vaccine in the hopes of persuading people to ignore fears that are going viral online, which aren't based on science and are being pushed by a vocal minority. How that goes will be a big part of New Zealand's COVID-19 story when we look back in that rearview mirror in the months and years to come. In breaking news this morning, social media giant Facebook has followed through on its threat, restricting people in Australia from viewing news content. Let's go to Nine's federal politics reporter, Fiona Willen, in Canberra. Fee, good morning to you. It's a big development. What does it mean for users? That was how Australian viewers of the Channel 9 breakfast show today found out on Thursday morning that Facebook, all of a sudden, had cut itself off as an avenue for sharing Australian news. In a blog post, Facebook announced it will no longer allow Australian publishers and news outlets to share or post any news content. 
Now, there was no public announcement of this, no media conference where the news media could question it, and it was announced online in the early hours of the morning while most people in this part of the world were fast asleep. So after years of building a preeminent position as a digital distributor of news, why would Facebook do that? Channel 9's reporter Fiona Willen explained that this was the tech giant's unilateral response to the Australian government's news media bargaining code, which will oblige digital platforms to pay for the news they distribute when it becomes law shortly. Uh, Facebook says it's done this with a heavy heart uh, in response to the Australian government's proposed media bargaining laws. So those are passing through Parliament with widespread support. Uh, The government has been trying to find a way to make tech giants pay for Australian-generated news content that they use. But the consequences of Facebook's action and the inconsistencies showed up almost immediately. On Thursday afternoon, the ABC reported that posts from the Bureau of Meteorology had disappeared, along with posts from satire sites. And the ABC's Radio Australia said that its pidgin-language show OneTalk, made by and for Pacific Islanders, is now inaccessible in the Pacific. And... Even Facebook's own Facebook page has removed content for Australian readers. Meanwhile, a horrified Channel 10 political reporter discovered this. State health departments have been cut off from Facebook in the middle of a pandemic. In response to that, Facebook said we will reverse any pages that are inadvertently impacted. Again, they said so in a written statement sent out electronically from HQ. You'll struggle to find any sound or vision of an actual warm human body from Facebook explaining any of this to the public via the media. But while Facebook is withdrawing from Australian news by withdrawing it from Australian Facebook users, the big beast of search has been cutting deals with major news providers in Australia to get around the news media bargaining code. Google's showcase deals will pump millions of dollars into the bigger companies creating Australian news, such as Seven West Media and Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. The latter deal fueled suspicions that Rupert Murdoch's lobbying was a crucial factor in persuading the Morrison government to confront Google and Facebook over paying for news in the first place. And it's not the first time that government intervention in the media market in Australia has benefited the big established players in publishing and broadcasting and their mogul owners like Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Stokes and the late Kerry Packer. Google isn't likely to do big deals for its news showcase product over the Tasman with smaller outlets or startups. Now, both Facebook and Google have had complicated relationships with the news media over recent years, increasingly antagonistic as the share of digital advertising captured by those platforms grew at the news outlet's expense. And to manage this, the Facebook News Project was set up in 2017. And in 2018, Facebook appointed a head of news partnerships for Australia and New Zealand, Andrew Hunter. Now, back then, he told MediaWatch that Facebook was committed to journalism in this region. There has been a realisation that uh, news is um, is incredibly important to uh, the audience, to the ecosystem, uh, and to people on Facebook. Uh, it's also really important to society. Society needs a uh, a fully functioning fourth estate. Everyone is incredibly passionate about making um, you know media work, making news work on Facebook. Um, and making, um, you know, Facebook work for the news industry as well. But that passion and that mission wasn't enough to dissuade the higher-ups at Facebook, evidently, from taking the nuclear option in its high-stakes game of paying for news. Just last month, Andrew Hunter was hailing the success of more than 20 industry partners, including some New Zealand media outlets, and growing their revenue and audiences against the odds in 2020. But now, many who rely on Facebook for audience in Australia 
probably aren't feeling much like industry partners of Facebook right now. So why spend time, money and PR capital mending fences with the news media with the Facebook journalism project only to burn the fences down in the middle of the night three years later? Well, MediaWatch wanted to ask Andrew Hunter, but he advised by email that our request had been forwarded to the Facebook press team and the team hasn't been in touch with us yet. In 2019, New Zealand's biggest news publisher Stuff quit advertising on Facebook. Stuff also paused posting on Facebook and Facebook-owned Instagram in July. And its new owner Sinead Boucher told us last year they did that partly because they felt Facebook was also becoming too dominant in digital advertising and not contributing enough to news. Now, others offshore may now walk away from the outlet that's now walked away from news in Australia. The media world is watching this and taking note. And so too are governments, including ours, which have said they've been monitoring Australia's bid to force the tech giants to pay for news. This past week, pictures of the severe winter storm that's been hammering Texas have featured in the news a lot. The ones of snow blanketing the landscape outdoors were striking enough, but the ones of ice inside people's houses, because the state's electricity system has failed, were even more startling. And with all that going on, cell phone photos of Republican Senator Ted Cruz taking off for sunny Mexico last weekend for a family break infuriated his constituents. Forced to fly home again after he'd been busted the next day, he told reporters he never really planned to be away for a long time or a good time in the sun. Um, I was trying to be a dad, and, and all of us have made decisions. When you've got two girls who've been cold for two, two days and haven't had heater power, and they're saying, hey, look, we don't have school, why don't we go, let's get out of here. I, I think there are a lot of parents that'd be like, all right, let me, if I can do this, great. However, Ted Cruz's cover story fell apart almost as soon as he'd uttered it because someone leaked private text messages that his wife had sent to neighbours and friends to the New York Times. Now, these messages made it clear the trip had been planned a while earlier to escape the cold and the hassle in Texas. Was it really in the public interest for these text messages to be revealed? Well, you'd think so, as people were officially advised not to cross the border because of COVID, and Senator Cruz himself had attacked rival politicians for making trips away during the current crisis. And last week on local radio, he told people this about the coming storm. We could see up to 100 people uh, lose their lives this week in Texas, so don't risk it. Keep, keep your, your family safe and just stay home and hug your kids. With that in mind, New York magazine writer Olivia Nutzi called the leaker an American hero. But other people felt squeamish about private messages from a spouse being used by the media in this way. And someone else in the US knows what that feels like. We can confirm that Archie's going to be a big brother. The Duke and Duchess are overjoyed. The baby will be eighth in line to the throne. The news comes 37 years to the day since Kensington Palace announced Princess Diana was pregnant with Harry. That's a fun fact for you there. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) Last Monday, news broke that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are expecting their second child. Meghan and Harry are really former royals now, having quit the kingdom for the US last year to get away from the press, among other things. But last week, the Sussexes, and Meghan Markle in particular, had a big win over the press for overstepping the mark on their privacy. She sued Associated Newspapers, the owner of the Daily Mail, for a scoop which was headlined like this. Revealed, the letter showing the true tragedy of Meghan's rift with a father she says has broken her heart into a million pieces. 
British Judge Lord Justice Mark Warby ruled that the publication of a letter to her dad was manifestly excessive and hence unlawful, and no trial was necessary to establish that. Meghan Markle said, We have all won, and we now know that you cannot take somebody's privacy and exploit it. And when she says we, does she mean us? Our media aren't really in the habit of printing people's private communications, but former New Zealand Herald Editor-in-Chief Gavin Ellis said this ruling was also a wake-up call as valid for New Zealand journalists as their British counterparts. He said that all this was about the competing principles of a public figure's right to privacy versus freedom of expression and the public's right to know. And... There may be instances where publication is justified in the public interest, but this judgment sets a high bar, and rightly so. But media freedom advocates aren't so sure, and in the UK, one veteran media lawyer told Lord Justice Warby, you are putting manacles on the media. Mark Stevens said that any letter that is leaked to a journalist cannot now be published under the terms of this judgment, and... It's a good day for the rich and powerful who can afford expensive PR people to curate a false image. Now, there have been some cases of our media reporting things that public figures have said that they thought were private, but here at Media Watch we don't know of clearly private and personal letters or conversations being turned into news stories without the consent of the parties involved. So, is Meghan Markle putting a marker down for the media over there really relevant for ours here? In his ruling, UK Judge Mark Warby referenced a book that he himself co-edited, The Law of Privacy in the Media, published by Oxford University Press, and his co-editor for that book was Professor Nicole Moham from Victoria University of Wellington. Well, I think the most interesting thing about this case is that it was fought at all, to be honest, because there's no, it's been established for hundreds of years that, uh, that, that letters between two people are private, particularly when they're operating in this kind of in this kind of context. So to the extent that it sets a precedent, it's one that we already knew. But it's a, it's a useful reminder that, um, that that rule is there. And it does apply well beyond letters. Situations arising um, with email or with, um, with intimate photographs that someone's taken, that someone's put on the internet. So in, in, um, in modern contexts, the rule applies um, in all of, to all of those different kinds of forums. Mm, and also kind of an irony that a lot of what was actually in the letter as reported was... Meghan Markle telling her father, you know, you've got to stop interacting with the tabloids. You're obsessed with tabloid media and you've got to stop. But Yeah, I, I mean, I it's actually it's quite, just... yeah, it's quite, an, it's an interesting reminder, actually, that the, the behind these celebrity stories, there are real people who are suffering real consequences. And she talks um, at, at length about pleading with him not to read the stuff that's in the media, not to allow himself to be affected in the way that he is. Well, in terms of any impact that it might have here, we don't have privacy law for the media. I mean, the, the media is exempt from the Privacy Act. Um, but when cases do come up, um, often you will see, if you read the judgment, there will be British cases often cited, um, often going back many, many years to establish these principles. So is it something that's likely to be cited if there's to be any kind of challenge in, in New Zealand of, of the way the media conducts itself? Yes, probably. Just to, to, to distinction between what we're talking, the tort that we're talking about here and the Privacy Act. So the Privacy Act is what a lot of people think of when they think of privacy. It's got a media exemption in it. Mm. So what we're talking about here is the tort of privacy, which is a, a civil action which a person can bring if somebody breaches their reasonable expectation of privacy in a circumstance where that's highly offensive and the person can't show a defence. So England and New Zealand have very similar actions in that regard. So um, the English action, you have to show a reasonable expectation of privacy and that there's no countervailing um, free speech interest which outweighs that, which is usually worked out by reference to the public interest. And in New Zealand, we do the same thing. So New Zealand law um, often looks to England in any event, in in any area for guidance. But in this area in particular, we have very few cases. They have a lot. 
And so it's it's very natural tendency to say, well, um, if we need to figure out what does the public interest mean in this kind of scenario, I think that a case like this would be something that the courts would look to. Okay, so the other option that we have when we look at uh, these matters is to look to American case law because they also have a tort of privacy. The problem with America is that they have very different attitudes to freedom of expression to the ones that we have, and so freedom of expression is, is prioritised. Mm. Yeah, and that's not what we do in New Zealand. For example, in this judgment, which is quite detailed, um, the, the judge starts talking about, for example, the Human Rights Act 1998 obliges the court to interpret English law in conformity with the European Convention on Human Rights and so on. As you're reading all this detail, you think, ah, oh, this surely can't have anything to do with New Zealand. Yeah, and I think that sometimes throws people off the scent a little bit because the, the English courts developed their privacy right in quite a specific way, which involved a whole lot of sort of dancing with the European Court of Human Rights, which is we don't need, we don't need to go into. But they, 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 there was a lot of resistance to introducing a privacy tort in the in England, but um, very powerful media were opposed to it, and um, so the, the the feeling was that this was always going to happen through the courts. They, they introduced a right to respect for private life in their Human Rights Act, and the courts used that as a springboard to introduce the tort in that jurisdiction. We did something different. We looked to the American case law and said, oh, the Americans do it, we can do it too. But in both cases, they were really just springboards to get the action into the law. Once it's in the law, the, the arguments are pretty much the same. Was there a reasonable expectation of privacy? And here we also have to say, was it highly offensive? But that usually follows. And was it outweighed by a free speech interest, a public interest on the other side? Mark Stevens, a British lawyer, um, quite well known. He's been one of the most vocal critics of this judgment. He's been saying that this effectively outlaws leaks and puts manacles on the media. He even addressed that personally to the judge. You have put manacles on the media. I was surprised for the reason that I gave before, which is that this has been the law for decades or for, for centuries. That you, that there's... So that I mean, literally from the Victorian times, this has been around. So it was it was a slightly strange comment to that extent. I think what what's really important to stress here is that in the normal course of things, you can't go around publishing people's the emails that people write to you. You can't go around publishing intimate photographs that people send to you. You, you can't normally do that in normal circumstances. The really important thing when it comes to leaks is the public interest. Because sometimes we say, look, OK, look, we know that this was your private email account, but if you're going to conduct yourself like that, I'm afraid, the, the privacy interest is not going to help you. There's an overriding public interest in everybody knowing that that's the way in which you were conducting yourself, and that, private, that public interest overrides any privacy interest that you might have had. Because our media don't habitually go, and go around revealing uh, private correspondence of individuals. In fact, I struggle to think of instances where it had happened. Do you think New Zealand editors should be reading this judgment carefully? And, uh, and uh, It's a reminder, I think, for? that there are privacy rights. I think it's not part of New Zealand's media culture to, to do these um, exposés on celebrities. I and mean, we've seen it in, in the UK with the phone hacking scandal at mm. the tabloids as well. I mean, that kind of behaviour is just a long way away from any kind of conduct that we get in New Zealand, partly because we just don't have that competitive media culture that goes on in those tabloids and that and that we actually just don't have the celebrities either, do we, in some ways? We don't have an equivalent of... But if you are leaked uh, private correspondence, then it's a reminder, I guess, of the fact that of what, what it is that you have to establish in order to be able to publish that without getting yourself into legal difficulty. And, and that, again, comes back to the, private, the public interest. And the public interest, it means something that the public sort of needs to know in order to conduct itself as a... 
I don't know, to be a sort of an informed member of society. So right, when people raised ethical concerns about the publication of Dirty Politics by Nikki Hager, for example, because a lot of that uh, based on uh, information without the correspondence via email and files released without the consent of the individuals concerned who ended up in the book. I mean, no, that's right. I mean, that's a good example of the application of the public interest defence. So those those emails were private. I mean, the fact that they were the, the fact that you're corresponding in a work context doesn't stop something from being private, particularly if it involves um, personal matters. So that that part of the test, that first part, was pretty easy to establish. There, the what what um, he would Hager would have been relying on would have been the public interest in that material, which was this is the way that our politicians are conducting themselves and the public needs to know that. And presumably, if you are a journalist in that situation, you need to be very careful about... I mean, I don't imagine that Nicky Hager published every email that he had coming across his desk. So he has to make an assessment about... is does. Is well, he said it in the book. Interest? He said there is material in here which is personal and would be damaging to the reputations of people, but I have decided is not germane to uh, the purpose of this book and and not not really and he didn't think that it met the public interest threshold and i mean and, and it's not it's not just his call. and when he made that call he he did so with knowing presumably i know that he knew that, that there were legal consequences if he got that wrong and so you you do always have to and that the media would have amplified it probably exactly. by um by reporting that stuff uh, and considering the publication to be a green light uh, then to publish stuff that yeah may not have had um a solid gold public interest behind it I mean, the kind of things that the, that the public interest would usually apply for would be if, if there's clear evidence of wrongdoing. So cr- serious criminal wrongdoing is the most obvious. In fact, some, I think if you were talking about serious criminal wrongdoing, then you might even get to the point where you could say that's not even private. Mm. But it's um, but then things like um, lack of fitness for public office, that's, that's something that's come out in, in the English case law. Um, you've been peddling a false image. That's something which has come out of the UK. You, you've been busy saying, oh, look, I'm this great family man. I stand for conservative values, and it turns out you're having an affair. Um, in one of the cases, it was um, one of the English captains. He was um, having an affair not just with anyone but with his teammate's girlfriend. That was regarded as being in the public interest to reveal because it interfered with his job as, as England captain, which brought with it certain expectations. So that, that's the kind of situation where the English courts have said there will be a public interest. And I think looking at, um, at dirty politics, I, I think that was, a pretty, that was a pretty safe bet as well, showing about the way that politicians um, and, their, and the people that they worked with were conducting themselves behind behind the scenes. The concern always in these things for, for media is, is there a chilling effect, you know, all the way down the chain to people who might be thinking about releasing something I think there's a public interest in, maybe dissuaded from doing it. Is that something that media here and uh, overseas, of course, could be concerned about? Yes, I think there is always a chilling effect. That's In order to minimise that chilling effect, we need as much certainty as we can possibly get because the, the worst thing, I think, for chilling is if you don't know in advance what's in the public interest and what's not. And I think that there can be some criticism but it's one of the reasons why it's useful to look overseas to say when is there a breach and when isn't there in these kinds of situations. But, yeah, I mean, there's always a risk. It's the same with defamation, isn't it, that you, you, know, you, you know it's true, but can you prove it? Mm. And, um, and we've seen situations where people have been sued for defamation despite the fact that it's true, and it's later come out that it is. So it does... It does but we, we tolerate that in defamation, and, and we do tolerate it also in privacy um, because the, the interest on the other side requires protection. It's just got, to, just got to be careful to make sure that you don't become overprotective. The, the, the public interest is quite broadly read. I mean, especially in New Zealand, there was an, a suggestion in a case called Andrews, which involved um, a couple being extricated from a car crash. And in that case, the judge had decided that it wasn't private. 
But he said even if it had been private, there would have been a public interest in these very intimate disclosures of this particular crash because of the public interest in road safety. So I think if you've got a genuine story, which is genuinely in the public interest, it's not just a look at what Meghan Markle wrote to her dad, then I I think the media are are pretty safe. So if, just hypothetically, finally, if such a situation arose, there was some private correspondence between two New Zealand individuals where the media thought... There was public interest in it, but um, maybe so they're not politicians and it doesn't concern matters of the nation. Uh, so even if it was marginal, do you think they would look at this decision um, and say, actually, we better not? Or um, do you think it wouldn't really cross their radar if they thought it was worth it, they would do it? I'd hope that it would cross their radar and then they'd make a decision about whether or not it was in the public. And I, mean, I, th- I think the courts will normally follow, if, if a good journalist is thinking hard about it, I imagine that their instincts will be pretty similar to what the what the court would decide is the right or wrong thing. Probably not a bad idea to get legal advice in that situation. But it, but I do feel, um, I, I don't, I'm not concerned by this decision that our media is suddenly not going to publish, um, publish things which are in the public interest. It's just a good reminder that that public interest defence needs to be uh, in place. Yeah, as Gavin Ellis wrote in his online column in the headline, editors should think again when the letter begins, Dear Daddy. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That was Nicole Morham, Professor of Law at Victoria University of Wellington and an editor of the Oxford University press book, The Law of Privacy and the Media, which is also co-edited by the British judge who recently ruled that the Daily Mail's publication of a private letter by Meghan Markle was against the law. Well, in this week's Midweek Media Watch, last Wednesday, Hayden Donnell took a look at another celebrity who suffered at the hands of the media, Britney Spears, the subject of a new documentary made by the New York Times and which is available here on the on-demand platform 3 Now. If you missed Midweek Media Watch, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.